0: Listeners, hello, Janine. Hey, Evelyn. Hey, Disruptors. Today, we're welcoming James Hanley and Christina Diego onto the show to help us dive further into a conversation at the intersection of technology, mentorship, and practice. With enhanced dependency on technology, what is an architecture firm's responsibility and role in educating staff on various digital skills? James and Christina are going to join us from Gray Pucksand, an Australian-based architecture firm and will help us kind of unpack and discuss the realities at play in practice.
1: As a digital technologist and strategist in the AEC industry, James leads digital transformation and champions cultural change within architectural practices in the face of a technological shift.
0: And Christina graduated in the middle of COVID after earning her Bachelor of Interior Design. She's part of their interior design team at Gray Pucksen and is going to help us understand the learning curve and experience that new graduates face once joining a practice. So we're going to jump into it. James and Christina, welcome to the show and let's start by having you both tell us a little bit about who you are and your role at the firm.
2: Sure. Thank you so much for having us. So my name is James Hanley. My role at Gray Park Sound is essentially their digital practice manager. So we work across sort of four or I work across four studios, basically leading their strategy in terms of technology um, implementation across uh, the company. So that's across all four studios. And when we talk about technology, that is anything from IT, uh, servers, SharePoint, online, cloud, right back down through to how do we get a conceptual mass from SketchUp to Revit. So it's sort of across maybe 20, 30 tools that our designers would use, all the way through to the infrastructure those tools run on, um, as well as the hardware. So ordering laptops, make sure they're, they're spec'd properly for virtual reality headsets. It's also looking down the track as well. So there's a lot of talk lately about the metaverse. How does that fit into architectural practices? There are big firms out there that are diving into that area, is that something we need to be ahead of? Um, There's a lot of talk lately, um, and it's been popping up ever on Twitter and LinkedIn around platforms like Midjourney, and what does artificial intelligence sort of have, um, or or how does that fit into into architectural practice? So, looking at all of those things, as well as making sure that just day-to-day, our digital systems run efficiently for our our staff and our projects.
3: Awesome. I wish my intro was that long, but... (laughs) I'm Christina. I um, am a graduate interior designer with Gray Puxend. I started about um, October last year. And since then, I've just kind of been diving in different projects with um, education, workplace, commercial. And yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for having us, guys.
1: Yeah, thank you for joining us, especially so early in the morning. <laughs> so what should our listeners know about gray puck sand from james you mentioned there four studios but why don't you tell us how much staff is across all the studios what makes you unique and christina being so relatively new to the profession i would even say what attracted you to gray puck sand as kind of your first full-time role coming out of school Mm.
2: sure i'll i'll Jump in. So, as I mentioned, we, we've got the four studios. So we're down the east coast of Australia. So um, Brisbane, or Queensland, New South Wales, uh, Victoria, and Canberra as well. So Canberra, we were in a, a fortunate position to open uh, a new studio at the height of COVID. Uh, that's how busy <laughs> the the industry is down here. Uh, we have sort of really grown quite quite quickly uh, over the last few years. So we're sitting around about that 140 mark at the moment in terms of staff, um, and we specialise in sectors such such as education, commercial uh, and workspace, as well as sort of pushing into that health and science and health sector as well. So I kind of like to say that we're a big small company. I, I am very fortunate to be able to sort of travel around to all the studios and it just feels like one big family. Um, there's no no one sitting off in a corner in an office. So like you can get along with everyone from your managing director right back to your, your graduates as well, uh, which is really cool. So, And I think it's a really supportive practice. We We really support people that come in and say, hey, I I actually haven't got a lot of site experience, I want to spend more time on site or actually I want to learn more about computational design. If you put your hand up, um, it's the one practice that I really feel like you get support for what your passion is um, and they help you sort of weave that into your day job, which I think is amazing.
3: I couldn't agree more. When I graduated, I was looking into a ton of different firms and I really was afraid to go for a bigger company just because I was scared to get like cookie cuttered into like one specific thing. When I found that Grey and was hiring, I did a bunch of research into the company and I, I realized that, yeah, there it's like small enough where you can, you know, show your interest in something and they will work towards you wanting to do what you want to do. Um, but at the same time, it's I feel like our clients love us. And it's just a growing thing where they're just happy to pop us onto more projects. So yeah, I'm just happy. I'm, I love this job. I love great
1: <laughs> Earlier in the show, you kind of managed, you kind of talked to us about all of the things that your role as a digital practice manager touches. Mm-hmm. Did you want to, can we dig a little bit more into that maybe what is what is your day-to day really look like and how do you yeah, how do you sure. begin to even think about managing
2: all of that? Yeah true I looked at a lot of coffee um, first and foremost um, <laughs> a lot of coffee and a lot of exercise just to balance out your uh, your, your life. Look I, I suppose that the big thing is is strategy right we, we never want to be and, and I say we the global we never want to be so sort of short-sighted or blinker to say like we just need to focus on getting stuff out this week. we need to be thinking much bigger um and look there there's people that Are really good at that. Some people, that's a challenge to to sort of think that far ahead. We don't want to think too far ahead, but we need to sort of plan for success in the near term future. So we always sort of go with a three year strategy. So for me, and it's really timely, we're sort of preparing that now. It's sitting down and looking at well, there's been a lot of talk about AI, and it's sort of come and gone and peaked and troughed, but it seems like it's having a bit of a second wind at the moment. And how does that really? How is that really going to convert and maybe affect? Um, the the design industry. Automation is just an ever-increasing tool that is going to make an impact. Day-to-day, I suppose my my role is almost making sure that we don't scare people with those sorts of things. Um, It's really interesting. A lot of people say, oh my god, Like I I actually had a partner the other day say, we need to get rid of you before you get rid of us. Um, And we sort of had a bit of a laugh about it. But it's making sure that you take every single person, whether they are the managing partner or a graduate or an architect or a des- uh, an interior designer on that same journey and sort of cater for their different learning speed. Um, so day to day, it is working with IT to make sure that our hardware is up and running and it's efficient. And we've got laptops on order and all these sorts of things during a a laptop crisis worldwide or a hardware crisis. It's also then making sure that on the flip side with our projects, hey, we have a really big data deliverable on this project. Are the design technology team across that? Are they sort of managing that? Um, So it's sort of, I spend a lot of time jumping between those two camps. And also I suppose the third sort of camp I like to say is just that people camp as well. You want to make sure that you're still tapping into people's emotions and not just driving them with technology. I think technology really makes people tired at times. Um, Even myself, I find sometimes when I leave the office and get on the bus, I just, I can't look at my phone or I just, I can't look at another screen for a few minutes. So make sure that we just don't overload people with too much. It's just a balancing act.
0: I think that's a good point. And I I feel like a bit of the subplot on this is really exploring the idea of, you know, having a focused group and a leader around technology. It's not something that firms needed, you know, not too long ago. But now I feel like there's kind of a really serious demand on everybody's, um, work operations that requires that. Uh, so whether it's being outsourced or it's something that you build in house, you need people who are leading and thinking about the technology of the practice.
2: Definitely. Yeah, I look, I, I, I mean, I, that's where I work, so I wholeheartedly agree. <laughs> I'm a little bit biased, um, but no, look, I, I do agree. I think that there's so like when I look at a project in any one of our studios, it's it's using and let's speak really broadly, it's it's probably using twenty to thirty different softwares to deliver that, and that might be a, Adobe through to Revit through to Rhino, SketchUp, uh, like a OneDrive or whatever it might be to transfer information. Who's managing all of that? Who's educating people on that? Who's supporting those platforms? Um, and also, who's strategizing where those platforms are in 12 months, 24 months time? And I think you're right. I think once upon a time, it didn't need you didn't need to have that role. Um, it was sort of you, you just sort of turn up and 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 use your computer, and, and sort of the IT guys take care of it. But even from design technology and IT, that those two strategies need to talk to each other simultaneously to really get the most out of or the most benefit for a practice.
0: I also want to talk about the scale because you're doing it at a pretty large scale. You're looking at a team of, you said it's, it's 150 and you guys are off across multiple locations. Mm. So that adds to the complexity. What does that look like in terms of that reach?
2: Look, it's really tricky. Um, So we, I would say Melbourne's our bigger studio, so Victoria. There's about, I would say, sort of 70 design-based staff down there. I'm based in New South Wales. So it's tricky sometimes to get the support down there. We're actually looking for a design technology specialist in that studio because what happens is with with no visible leadership in terms of training, support, whatever it might be for technology – And because the industry is so busy and and your design deadlines never stop, right, it's sort of sometimes you will find projects just fall back into that, hey, just do whatever you need to do to get it done, and we will get out of here at 4 o'clock for for a Friday afternoon drink or or whatever it might be. And before you know it, those shortcuts become, in inverted commas, efficiencies. And then before you know it, you're sort of maybe – negatively impacting a project um, deliverable. So, there's definitely complexity uh, in terms of that scale. In terms of having team members in every studio, I've come to learn in my sort of short 15-year career, personality is key. Um, You can teach anyone software skills and technology skills, but... In a technology role, as a trainer, you've got to have that right personality to be able to have someone come to you at 4.55 on a Friday afternoon, absolutely almost on, on the verge of tears. And you've got to be able to talk them down and calm them down and say, hey, we will we'll, we'll fix it. We'll get your deadline sorted. It's okay. So soft skills, I think, in, in a technology environment are just absolutely paramount.
1: I think a lot of people would find that last sentence pretty interesting with the shift to soft skills yeah <laughs> especially on the technology side I, it's it's not something that i mean it's something that you often talk about from a people management side but uh, the technology later and the soft skills is, is really
2: interesting mm. yeah, look it, it took me a long time at the start of my career to to understand that soft skills side i was like what do you mean soft skills like th- th- I, this is what i do that I, I work with technology but it's about how you interact with with Every person you you come across, right, and how what's the lasting impression you leave with them um, when you've you've sort of helped them along their way in terms of what they were needing to do? I, I think, yeah, I, I I fell into that trap early on where I was like, oh, soft skills, no, that that don't really matter. Whereas I suppose coming out of COVID, there's been such a focus on mental health, um, soft skills. I've I've completely I'm converted. Soft skills are <laughs> everything. So moving
1: on over back over to Christina and as an, you know, a younger person in the field who is a lot, a lot of people would say, you know, still has a lot to learn.
3: That's an understatement.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So what are important areas or what are areas that you feel that you need the most support, especially if you think back to the first you know, two, three months that you had at Grey Puck Sand. Mm.
3: When it comes to being a grad, like reality is you do get a lot of the documentation side of the job. Um, so I am very much lucky to, you know, work at GP where, you know, we have a really good team to help support us in that. But just in general, like I feel like as a grad, your your abilities to adapt to from like what you've learned at uni as opposed to in an actual legitimate firm is like vastly different. Um, So I think like coming from university where, you know, you're able to, I don't know, do assignments and do certain things that are like according to your design, like your own thinking, whatever that may be, coming into a firm where you have a legitimate client and things change and they want deadlines now and certain things like that. So coming into a firm, you're just, yeah, you're just kind of in an environment where you are meant to adapt and learn really, really quickly um, in, yeah, in most of your projects.
0: Yeah, I was curious, and both of you can chime in on this, but what are some of the typical areas that you are often seeing your team coming for support, especially related to technology?
2: It's an interesting one. I think it's normally around the software that we're using to deliver projects. So it's really funny. We've, we've been talking or I've been talking with with a few colleagues and just people in the industry around digital natives versus digital immigrants and we're getting these guys and girls coming in from yeah i know that sounds really like basically it's people that grew up in analog era versus spotify era right and it's funny like even even some of these guys and girls that are coming in from from universities and colleges and education sort of institutes they can do amazing things with with technology but some of the basic underlying principles are not taught so I think where we're seeing at the moment is they've got this really good design knowledge and they've been taught design principles really well. But in terms of actually getting that sort of maybe out of their head onto paper or onto a, into a software, that's probably where it's falling down a little bit. And I think that's probably just a symptom of the industry's move so far with major platforms like your Revit's or your Sketchups or whatever they might be, that they've got in-house practices, best industry user guidelines and all these different ways of doing things, you can't possibly expect a a graduate to learn every which way uh, and and every platform before they they enter the industry.
0: I totally agree. It's interesting because we just interviewed Slantis, which uh, they're a technology company that Mm. is very focused on similar conversations around skill building and and using Revit and documentation. And we had a, a similar discussion about, this learning gap that happens when Mm. you come out and you start your career and it clashes with the demand of the industry really dramatically. Like the, the idea of the practitioner is that we've got a deadline. We got to get it done. It needs to be accurate. We'll try to teach you, but we also need you to run with us while we try to deliver this project. And I think for the new graduate or even people who may have left practicing or are coming back to it, there might be a learning curve that you have to go through. And so I, I wanted to talk to you both about how do you address that learning curve? And and Christina, maybe you can start by telling us so far, like from your experience, what have been helpful things that have happened that have helped you kind of address that learning curve?
3: Well, I feel like for me, I'm, I'm quite lucky in terms of I I went to a design college that was actually quite progressive. They they changed their curriculum quite a lot to adapt to um, just industry standards. Like I know a lot of I have a lot of friends who did architecture at quite like I would say like well renowned like universities in Australia, and none of them really had the skill that I had once I graduated because my college was so um, they they just considered that a priority to adapt and to teach us the industry standards at the moment. So I think coming into a firm, even though I would say I learned a little bit more than the average you know, architect leaving, I don't know, like uh, University of Sydney or whatnot, it's still like, I feel like everyone, you come into a firm, everyone's running towards a deadline and I'm merely learning how to walk. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? So it's kind of like, it's kind of like you just get this shock and you're, they, they pop you onto a project and everyone's still like working towards this thing. And you're just like, what is going on? I'm genuinely confused, but again, like the support that you have from people around you is what helps you move forward. And yeah, For sure, that's kind of my experience in the last couple of months.
2: And I definitely see that as well. Like, I I think – I've been thinking about this sort of term, like, productively curious. And I feel like you get these grads that turn up starry-eyed into a practice and it's like running into a brick wall at 20 kilometers an hour. It's like, (laughs) no, we don't need your curiosity. We need you to deliver. And I think that's – I I kind of think that's a bit unfair because it's sort of like – all these skills that you've amassed and that you're starting to learn right at the start of your career. And then it's sort of like, no, 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 we need you to just jump in here and just churn, churn, churn. Like, I I think that's, if if we start going off track, I think that's what starts to lead towards like a brain drain out of the industry. And while you get people leaving to go to to prop tech companies and to startups and and things like that, I, I think we really need to show a bit more care for people entering the industry or re-entering the industry as well um that might have been out we, we recently had someone that came back after sort of a 10-year breakout and I, th- I think we don't show enough i'm oh, not caution the wrong word um care around these people and say, hey, things have actually changed a fair bit while you've been studying or while you've been away, and we want to support you um, getting up to speed. I, th- I think more often than not, and I think, Christina, you, you might be able to sort of chime in here as well. I think when we have new status, for example... I sit down with them and give them a, a pretty in-depth induction around our systems and our platforms and so on. And then straight away they're put onto a project and it's like, see you later, you're off and running. And it's like, hang on, like, what's the project? What's the value? How much fee have we got for this stage? Like, there's no, it's just straight into it. And I, I think that that elevates the stress and sort of takes the shine off it. Yeah, pulls the rose-tender glasses off fairly early.
0: hundred <laughs> percent. But it seems like uh, in your studio that James is someone you guys can go to to ask questions. Have you tapped into using him as a resource?
3: Oh, all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I um I would just randomly call James I'm like, hey, I don't know how to do this. Can you help me? And yeah, we know that he'll always be there. And there is a team behind him as well. Like, I feel like there's always someone that we can call out to if one person is busy, because I assume James is on a ton of different meetings and also trying to everyone else is trying to contact him as well. Um, so yeah, it's it's very much helpful to have a team behind him.
1: Yeah, what's interesting to me about this conversation is for me it almost and this is a little bit off topic, but it almost goes back to this business model of we need people to fill billable hours. And the pipeline is so full and we're busy. And then somewhere in there, everyone's like, oh, but architects, we run off an apprenticeship model of like teaching yeah. and learning. And those two things just don't don't work in, in the contemporary context anymore. So I don't know. I, I'm almost wondering to myself out loud, you know, when you onboard a new person, you should, mm. you know, set aside at least an X percentage amount of their time to overhead to just to actually help make them more successful at the end of their first year by setting them up successfully and taking that time rather than just throwing them in.
2: Agreed. I I think there's, there's still a mind shift or mindset shift that needs to take place there because it's straight away. You're absolutely right. As soon as you get in the door, bang, your billable hours. And, and I think that's where we sort of, the industry falls down a little bit is we've got to accept a little bit of overhead to make people feel more comfortable in the, the environment, feel ready to tackle a project with a certain software or whatever it might be. And, and I think, again, as well, even having that sort of, having a team where it's like, we've got people that will put their hand up. As I was saying sort of earlier, if you put your hand up and you want to, you want to help out on something, we're incredibly supportive. We need people to build content and and build furniture for, for some of our renders. And people will put their hands up and they're like, and sometimes the practice will be like, oh, but that's, where does that time go? I'm like, stop guys we need to not have this conversation like that chair will be used 50 more times afterwards or 100 more times afterwards just give me an hour of non-billable for it now Um, it's that that mind shift is is so deeply ingrained in our industry that it's it's billable hours or bust and i think it really needs to shift away from that
0: so i wanted to dive into that more and ask you james like what's your vision for how the architecture firm can fill that role in terms of providing education to people and in order to help the project actually be more successful, um, not just as a drain on non-billable time.
2: Yeah, sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, So non-billable time, it's and everything I, I try to do, I try to be as efficient as possible. So what we do and and as Christina pointed out, we might have, I might have people turn up to my desk and ask me a question or give me a call on Teams if I, I'm sort of not in the studio. But what we do is we make sure that we have several platforms and a bunch of information around the practice available at the click of a button essentially. So we, much like sort of any other practice, we have sort of a central intranet uh, where there is a ton of every training recording I've ever run, um, how to use OneDrive, how to start a new project in Revit, how to link Rhino to Revit. All those sorts of things are recorded and put up there and people can watch them in their own time, wherever they might be. We have a bunch of documents as well. So I think going back to that sort of soft skill conversation, use you have to understand how to... Or you have to understand that people learn differently in different ways and at different speeds. So... Whilst one person might love to sit there and read a step-by-step instructional guide with images, someone else just wants to jump onto a video and be able to fast forward and backtrack and go forwards and whatever it is. So having all of those different mediums there, there might be online courses like we've built courses based off YouTube channels or LinkedIn learning, all these different platforms. You've got to cater to everyone. I mean, there's a mountain of work there, but once you put that foundation in, um, you can sort of point people to the right direction and say, hey, Go check out this video or go read this guide and at the end of it come back and, and ask me a question if you, you still need support you never want to take the personal side out of it as much as we i love to talk about technology you still like to be a person and be able to say hey come and talk to me don't just go off into the ether um, you want to make sure that people still feel they've got your support as a person and you're not just going to direct them to a youtube channel every time they, they have a question.
0: What do you think is most challenging about teaching technology skills to architects and designers?
2: For me, it's probably the breadth of content that we have to teach, how much we have to teach it, and just the, this, the audience size, right? Whenever I work with design technology specialists on my team, I always sort of remind them, you are going to have to train on this one topic 50 times, and you're going to have to repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat all with a smile on your face because it's not going to be relevant to everyone at the same time. Like Christina might be working on on uh, like a computational script for a facade early in the year in January, but another person in another studio might be doing the same thing in December, 12 months later. You're going to have to support both of those people on exactly the same workflow, but just – months apart, and you might tap into Christine or someone that's done it in the past and say, hey, can I link you up with this person? They're going through a similar sort of issue, um, but I think – what sort of maybe keeps me awake at night is just I would love a breather. I would love like all of these technology companies to be like, we're going to take a year off so everyone can catch up <laughs> and all the software developers to just stop um, because there's, there's just, I mean, learning never stops, right? You, you you will learn whether you're a graduate coming into the practice this week or whether you are um, returning to, to industry after a ten-year break or twenty-year break, um, there's always something to learn, and I suppose it's just how do you keep that momentum, but also how do you not hit saturation point? That's also something I'm really, really critical of. I always cringe when I have to send like an all-company email because I'm just like, oh god, I'm sure that's just going so- straight to someone's trash, <laughs> and they're not going to read it, and like, rightly so. Sometimes it's just like, I just we want to stop. We don't want to hear any more about technology, but. I don't know, how do you keep that education going, but at a healthy, healthy level, it's tricky.
1: So what I'm hearing you say, James, is you don't like the fact that all these companies move to SAS model and you want them back on DVDs that you download, <laughs> <laughs> or your like CDs that you get like every once a year.
2: <laughs> no, no, don't worry. I, I, I love, I love SAS. I love, I love the SAS um, <laughs> model, but it's just, yeah, when, when, as we touched on earlier, when you're when you're using 20 or 30 different softwares to deliver over the life of a project, and that might be sort of like different script packages in Grasshopper or different add-ins in, in Revit, there's, a, there's just so much training content that goes into that and so much support. And I think that's probably where I've, I've had discussions in the past with firms I've worked for and even Grey Pucks. And, like, you could easily employ someone five days a week just purely on training, purely on training, nothing else. But, I mean, that, that, that overhead conversation, again, rears its head. Um, so it's, yeah, it's incredibly tricky to balance. And then I suppose with all those software companies that do release product updates, four or five updates a year, like it's, yeah, it's never-ending. It's fun, but it's never-ending. <laughs>
1: christina is there anything so obviously you said you had a very kind of you were happy with with uni and where it led you to but is there anything that you wish uni would have prepared you better for
3: i feel like well i know for me um my experience at uni was quite good i think there's definitely with with I, I have a lot of friends who did architecture and interior design and stuff, and they haven't had the best experience themselves. But a lot of that is genuinely because they feel like they are not prepared. Because like I, I feel like uni is really good at preparing you to think conceptually, the design thinking, everything that you you feel like you're gonna do on the job. But reality is when you when you job when you work, it's different. So. Yeah, I think uni in preparing us to like have that technical knowledge. I, I know a lot of unis that still use Rhino and use SketchUp just to to get that knowledge going technically. But yeah, when when we were doing like Revit at uni, that was definitely very, very helpful. Even like because when I was at Billy Blue, we were doing like Enscape. So things that people are using in the industry is very much um what I enjoyed the most. And yeah, I think it's just like the reality of uni and then coming into a firm for sure is something that I think is important. I have a question for
0: both of you, but like kind of different for both of your perspectives in the firm. Um, So James, I'm curious, what recommendations would you have to architects and designers who are facing that continuous technology learning wall? um or curve or whatever. I don't know what metaphor comes to mind for you and how to manage that in addition to their deadlines. And then Christina, what advice would you give to people who are managing people at your level in terms of helping to improve their learning experience in the firm as they're on these really tough deadlines?
2: I would just urge people to be productively curious, right? Um, Not everyone wants to be involved in knowing the latest technology trends and and all these sorts of things. Like some people just love design um, and and that's perfectly okay. Uh, Some people love interior, some people love architecture, some people love technology. But I think it's coming together and understanding the different perspectives of those groups. So I think instead of just having your your technology team just sort of saying, hey, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this, be a little bit more curious and say, well, actually, you know what, like, what can I do differently on my next project that might be a bit more efficient? Um, I, I don't think I've, um, I'm just trying to think, I don't think I've ever really seen like a lessons learnt Sort of scenario ever work really well? Um, I, I feel like we're, we're and i say again, the general we are sort of really bad at looking back and saying, well, actually, what did not didn't work well on that project? I feel like we sort of are, are too busy. There's another deadline and we're on to another project. And there's no time to really take stock and say, hey, how can we actually deliver that more effectively? Or how can we use a different software to be more efficient or whatever it might be? So I think, yeah, just invest in your in yourself invest in your your own learning as well there's always uh, there'll always be a team of of people there to support you and I, I suppose one of the mantras i try to live by is try not to like i don't ever want to be the smartest person in the room because otherwise i'm not learning anything so make sure you reach out to those people around you that know way more than you do and just soak it up in, in whatever time you have
3: yeah, I agree. I feel like with with grads, I think uh, I feel like I'm speaking for all the grads in the world right now. But generally like if if a manager or, or someone above us is just patient, I think that's the most important thing. We were talking about like earlier we were talking about like a grad coming in and it's like everyone else is running. The the fact is that a thing for a grad would usually take a little bit longer than it would for a mid-level or even a junior. So I think just patience for from us. Mm-hmm. Um, we're all still learning. I think it's also a thing for a grad to do is to just be adaptable to everything. People will come up to you and you know that they're being legitimate, they're being supportive. And sometimes the harsh words are actually a good thing um i actually had a mentor here at at gp kind of be like look i know you came into the firm thinking you're going to design everything but reality is we need you on schedules so um yeah that's just something that you feel like it's something that you come into a firm you're like okay um i have to adapt everyone Mm -hmm. here is really nice and i know they they want what's best for me and their patience actually helps me move forward instead of freak out and burn out from all the things that I learned in my first week.
2: Yeah, yeah I do think, yeah, practice. I think practices really have to nurture that mentality and nurture those, those grads to help them grow. Um, and not just grads, nurture anyone. Everyone is learning. No matter whether you've been in a practice for one week or 10 years, I, I think practices really have to think about what is their approach to learning and development. Because more often than not, I think when, I don't know, when push comes to shove, maybe those sorts of budgets are the first things to maybe get cut or maybe go on hold or uh, especially when people, when there are big projects that come in or deadlines, of course, learning and development goes on hold. But I, I think that's a really, for me personally, I, that's a really important part of a, a culture and probably that's what attracted me three years ago to, to Grey Park and their focus on learning and development. And hey, if you put your hand up, we will absolutely support you. Um, in, in what you want to learn,
0: James. I feel like you and I had some really good conversations offline about the future of practice, and I just want to tap into any additional thoughts that you wanted to share with us about things that you're getting excited about. What are you? What are you trying to work towards?
2: Yeah, how much time have you got? Um, it's yeah, like there's I don't know. I, I feel like there's there's so much out there. We have to be sort of very targeted in in what we're approaching. Uh, I mean, look, personally, I'm I'm really excited about the the artificial intelligence uh, stuff that's happening. Um, I feel like that's gathering momentum again. I'm really interested to see how architects start adapting towards that. Um, look, generative design gets gets a bit of a bashing in the media um, in terms of like sort of how it works and, and what it's actually putting forward. We've, I've seen these studies where they're just like, oh, look, we took a park bench and, and applied generative design and it just looks crazy. And it's, it looks like it's using 10 times more material than what it actually needs. So I'm interested to see where that goes over the next few years. I know there's a lot of, a lot of work out there in terms of just how they're sort of placing buildings on site and maximizing constraints and and automating those sorts of things. So I think probably the biggest thing I'm excited about is the AI. Um, but in terms of calling it artificial intelligence, I'd probably step back and call it augmented intelligence because I really am excited about seeing designers work with computers and technology more to get much more efficiency out of their projects um that look automation is always exciting i, I feel I, I feel like if we can make any of the processes if we, if we can remove five mouse clicks from a process for our for our designers on projects that's that's a huge win um I, and i think automation will continue to be a focus just as as fees and margins stay low and as there's sort of shortages and, and things on site, yeah, I think automation and AI would be the two big things that I'm excited about and that we're, we're sort of looking towards as a practice and how that's going to impact us. I'd rather be ahead of it than trying to trying to catch up. And I think actually the other one would be sustainability. Um, I think even Christina and I were talking about that the, the other day, like uh, are we even, uh, I, I think I mentioned embodied carbon uh, to someone in, in the office the other day and they were like, what's that? Um, and that just sort of in a nutshell sort of just rounded out my thinking of like uh, wow, like are we are we talking about this enough? Like material selection is that even sort of a discussion and around embodied carbon and and sustainability at, at a at a education level um, right through to practice? how How are we really equipping our businesses today to make sure there's an indus- industry tomorrow to work in? They, they, that's something that I'm excited about and working for.
1: <laughs> I want to twist the question a little bit, but then throw it back out to Christina to say, you know, what, what are you most excited about in terms of the future of your career in this profession?
3: I mean, I'm happy with any project that gets thrown at me, but um, I think just seeing how the industry is like constantly changing. And again, like as James was saying, we were talking about sustainability as a factor. That's just there's so much in that that I feel like I could learn and um, well, everyone could really learn about. And I think the industry is definitely going in that direction. So, yeah, that's definitely one of the most exciting things about the firm. Like, Sorry, the firm. The um, industry that I really want to learn more about, get to know, like, again, the materials, um, how we can adapt our design to be more sustainable for the world and all that kind of stuff. I think as a grad, you just, you just want to be part of it. So I think just putting my hand up and, and again, like, um, James, what were you saying? is like productive,
2: productively curious,
3: productively curious. I want to be productively curious, um, in anything that I do. So, yeah.
0: I guess I'm also wondering just like any recommendations on the technology front. I mean, there's so many different tools and resources out there. Is there a technology stack that you're really excited about or are you, do you not have like bias against different technology? (laughs)
2: Um, No, look, I, 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 I mean, look, we, we are, I I try to position ourselves or myself as platform agnostic. So I, I try to, yeah treat everything equally. I mean, that that's part of R&D and bringing new technology in, right? It, I might have a favorite, but I, I always try to step back and be like, right, there's three here. We need to evaluate all of these. So, look, there's uh, right now, there's nothing I'm sort of really looking at in terms of bringing in, but... There's a lot happening out there. There's, I mean, there's rumblings on Twitter about Revit replacements and all this crazy sort of talk. And I'm like, don't get excited, don't get excited, don't get excited. So you just, I don't know. Sometimes it's, it's. I I sort of am in one of those little sit back moments where I'm just sitting back to see what happens because I feel like the next maybe 24 months there could be some really big shifts um, start to take place. So I'm just sort of yeah, keeping an eye out and seeing what's happening and making sure we're ready to jump when we need to.
0: Interesting. Yeah, Uh, Revit replacement, that that triggers a lot of thoughts.
2: (laughs) Oh, I'm sure it will. Yeah, I, I, it's it's an interesting concept. I I, I I personally don't know how that will what what will happen there, how it will happen, if it will happen. But there seems to be there's talk out there. There's I mean I suppose that comes back to automation and and things like that. There's a lot of platforms out there that are really pushing into different sectors or different. Parts of your design process. Um, I don't think necessarily there'll be a revit replacement, but I feel, and this is probably where the stress comes back in. I feel there will be more softwares for for designers to use <laughs> to deliver in a process.
0: Yeah, I agree.
1: I mean, on that front, to me, I I rare and we talked about this earlier in the season, I've rarely met an architecture firm who fully utilizes the full capability of Revit. Yeah. So I do feel like there's a lot of inverse happening where there's actually people coming out with like lighter weight versions that architects need. Yeah. <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> that aren't as expensive as the entire suite, but then again, we're not using the entire, yeah. um, the power of, of, of the software itself.
2: Yeah. And look, I, I suppose that comes back to the whole, this whole conversation around training and education. We, we have some people that are phenomenal in SketchUp and Rhino um, and some people that are phenomenal in massing in Revit. Um, so, some of our projects are Revit from day one to, to day end. Some other projects actually go through that sort of multi-software approach or multi-platform approach. So I I suppose it's, yeah, it's a tricky one. I I don't know, I'm just really interested to see what happens in the next few years. Because I I feel like some, and, and rightly so, I feel like some people hit sort of just technology exhaustion uh, when it comes to to, what do you mean? I've got to use another software to do this one task. Like, why can't I do it in in this software? Or what do you mean? I've got to do it for this project? It's you can sort of understand how it gets a bit a bit frustrating for for the industry to to have to pick up and and multi-tool. I mean, there is no one tool that does it all. But when you keep throwing tools at designers, and there's another thing to learn, yeah, that saturation point for education becomes a critical factor.
0: Yeah. I definitely, I feel that all the time. (laughs) (laughs) I guess to close out the conversation, I wanted to come back to any final thoughts you guys, either of you have about best practices for elevating conversations on technology and mentorship and practice. I think one other last thought that we haven't really covered is this kind of push pull between individual career growth and the project delivery and I'm I'm just wondering if there are any ideas that come to mind on how to kind of balance those two needs.
2: Look, I think for for building out support, I I think in my mind it's sort of twofold. I think it's it's incredibly important. I look, once your practice reaches a certain size, and you, there are those conversations that start around having specific roles for design technology support. I I think that's really important, and I think. Look, I think the biggest one, and we sort of touched on it before, is that I think practices really need to come into the conversation and, and support, not only support embedding design technology teams into practices, um, but support um, their use and their how they work with designers. They've got to support designers in terms of their career growth. In terms of how you balance project delivery and, and career growth, I, I suppose that's the never-ending struggle, right? It's, yeah, there's only so many hours in a day and you always want to sort of take care of yourself learning, but there's also your work to do as well. It's I, I don't know, I think it's, uh, that's, that's life balance, right? <laughs> yeah, I just think you've got to balance, I, I don't know, personally I try to have one day a week where I just sort of put a few hours aside to do my own learning and development and then the rest of the time is sort of spent supporting other people's learning and development. I just, I, I feel like, I feel like if you don't carve out your own time, it'll get carved out for you on a project or on something else. So I, I think you've, you've got to take care of the me to take care of the we.
0: Hi Disruptors, if you like the content from today's show, you can find all of our past episodes over on practiceofarchitecture.com slash podcast.
1: Be a part of the conversation by joining us, our speakers, and others in our community at practiceofarchitecture.com slash community. Our social media handle is at practiceofarch. That's at practice of A-R-C-H. We love to hear from you. Drop us a note to
0: say hello. This show is part of Gable Media. You can learn more about other podcasts and video channels in our community by visiting gablmedia.com.
1: Thank you for joining us on Practice Disrupted, a podcast by Practice of Architecture. Tune in next week for a new conversation on change in the profession.